Let's have a sincere conversation about events across the nation and topics for our own morality. Let's openly discuss in an environment of trust where perception is reality. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast Perception is Reality. It is your host, David. And today, I'm excited to introduce you to Derek Canis. Hey, guys, how are you doing? Derek, thanks for joining. Uh, I like to tell everybody how we know each other. So I put out a desperate plea on Twitter for people who felt misunderstood. I think that was the one um, that you responded to. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. Um, so Derek and I don't know each other. We did have a preliminary conversation earlier this week, just so Derek would uh, get to know me and know that I'm not a crazy internet stalker um, or certifiably insane maniac type person. Um, to get this far, I think I've uh, successfully convinced Derek that I'm, I'm not those things. Although whether that's true or not, he'll never know. <laughs> um, so thanks for being here, Derek. Thank you for um, having me. It's be fun. Also, I would like to tell everybody that I was a half an hour late because I had it in my head that the meeting was going to start at a certain time, but I didn't turn on the computer because what I like to do is make sure that people get, I don't like to, to, to prep. It's, it's unprepped, unedited, and un, you know, unscripted. Um, I logged on earlier today. I went to Derek's website, which he will share with you at some point during this, and it'll definitely be in the uh, blog notes um, after this episode airs. And there was a video with, uh, I believe it was uh, behind the scenes with, with uh, your two coworkers. And I was violating my own principles of going in without doing, you know, going, that was turning into research for me because, I mean, who doesn't love dogs? Uh, so I shut the computer off and I was late. So I apologize. And Derek was nice enough to say, even though you were late, I'm still going to come on the show. <laughs> It's all good. Mistakes happen. So, sir, can you please tell me and the audience what we're going to discuss today? Um, there's a, a lot to discuss. Uh, multiple health issues, including a congenital heart defect, um, blood transfusions, um, leading to a AIDS diagnosis, uh, 16 years undiagnosed, the medical issues that's caused, and what led to me creating what is now a foundation that has been nationally and internationally recognized for the work that we have done in the HIV and AIDS community. Wow, that is a lot. Oh, I have so many questions already. Uh, the first is that we're going to talk about some personal health issues. Um, looking, and, and just so everybody knows, uh, because we contacted each other via Twitter, um, Derek, you're very open about your health issues. And I think that's one of the, the cornerstones of your foundation and the activism. Is that the right word to use? Activism? Yes. For... Yes, 
Okay, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, no I, I do this all the time. Don't be afraid to say, hey, shut up, I'm trying to talk, I can take it. Um, I'm just excited that you're here because we've got a lot to talk about. So I just wanna make sure that you're, you're very public about this. Uh, so no one needs to think that I'm coercing you against your will to talk about uh, these health issues. Uh, because of your activism, I feel my perception is that it's important for you to talk about this to remove stigmas and help those uh, other people. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, that's correct. That's my entire goal is to remove uh, stigma with the virus and stigma really with any diagnosis. When someone is diagnosed with anything, it's people look at and perceive their life different. And really, it's not. I mean, we all still go through the same problems. Like, I don't get a discount from Verizon because I have a chronic medical condition. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. Um, and it's a shame that you don't because uh, that, that, that's expensive. Um, cell service is expensive. Not, not that uh, having a condition warrants any sort of special treatment because I know that uh, I'm assuming, and again, this is my perception just from seeing your Twitter feed a little bit and uh, the preliminary conversation is that uh, you just, there, there, you do have a bunch, if I may use the word bunch of medical ailments, but that doesn't mean you want to be treated any different than anybody else. Exactly. I've always, um, I hate when anybody does try to take care of me or baby me or anything like that. I'm very adverse to that because I'm very independent and even my doctors will tell you like I have been caught wandering hallways when they thought I should have been knocked out for six more hours after a surgery and I woke up and undid my own IVs and was caught walking down the hallway <clears throat> bent over crooked leaning against a wall but in my mind I could have sworn I was walking straight as could be and I was going to the cafeteria to get something to eat so I'm I'm a very stubborn, hard-headed patient that if you ever have me as a patient, I will go ahead and advance and apologize. I know how to take out my own IVs. I know how to bandage myself back up. And I, if I can do it on my own, I want to do something on my own. In hospitals, that's the opposite mentality you're supposed to you're in a hospital to be taken care of. Well, I think to a certain extent, uh, I mean, I do have my own health issues that, I've, that I contend with. Um, not quite as many as you, um, but I will say from my, my experience is that one, uh, and I just want to address the nursing population. If you're a nurse and you're out there, you're awesome. I love you all. Thank you for keeping me alive. Um, number two, I think that that uh, those nurses and their job to keep you alive is to, to a certain extent, take care of you, but they want to see you up and around walking because if you're not moving, you're dying. Um, and I've heard that a couple times 
when it comes to hospitalizations. If you're not moving, you're dying. They want you to get out of that bed when the appropriate time is right. Um, I'm pretty sure that you might agree with me that getting out of bed post-surgery, waking up and, and shocking everybody, you know, I mean, one, that shows your tenacity, which I want to talk about in a minute, uh, but two, may not have been the best course of action. Maybe like after half an hour, you know, like you're awake a little bit more, then walk around, you know, grab your little IV stand like the rest of us do and then walk around. But um, I admire your ability to just look at a surgeon and be like, that was a walk in the park. Let's go get some yummy cafeteria food. Come on. Yeah, last year I had, I had my fifth pacemaker implanted. And that, um, I want to say it was about three, three and a half hour surgery. And I got up within an hour of being in post-op and got dressed and walked out under my own power. And my doctor and the nurses and my entire family looked at me like I was crazy. Because it was a fairly long walk from where we were in the hospital back to the parking garage and to where the car was. And I made the entire walk with my family standing behind me, like waiting for me to fall, waiting for me to stumble. And I walked it perfectly fine and was talking fine and had no problems. And I think it's a, it scared my family to an extent because I mean, you don't normally see people do that and you're not really supposed to do that. Even my doctor told me, he goes, you're supposed to take the wheelchair ride that you've already paid for. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, and that wheelchair ride is not, uh, not cheap. He said, I admire the fact you walked. He said, but you next time you, should probably think a little bit longer and take the wheelchair. I said, no, I'm good. I had a point to prove. So this well, is I'm... the fifth pacemaker. You got to make a statement. <laughs> okay. So the number, if, if you're listening, the fifth one is the one where you make the statement. <laughs> well, the fifth one's actually the craziest one I've had thus far. It's Bluetooth and I have a remote control now. And every month I scan the pacemaker and it sends a report to the doctor, which is kind of crazy. It has its own app on my phone. Wow. Me, just like I got an alert this morning about the interview when it's time to send a report in. Wow. Um, so this is one of those butterflies that I warned you about. Do you ever worry because it's Bluetooth about um, biological hacking? I know that, I, look, in previous episodes of the podcast, I've warned people that sometimes I will put on my tinfoil hat. Um, so this is one of those moments for you and for them. Do you ever, is that a concern for you? Oh, yeah. After I got it, I looked it up and it took the company that made it five tries with the patent office to get a version that the patent office couldn't hack that they would approve. Hmm. So it's kind of, I mean, it's the way technology is moving so fast. Eventually there will be a majority of the population that has 
some kind of device that they're physically dependent on that could possibly be hacked. So as an early adopter, maybe not by choice, um, but is, is it fair that I call you an early adopter? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so as an early adopter, and, and I think I understand what you're saying because I think when we're talking about implants, we're talking, we already have cochlear implants. Uh, we already have, we're, we're getting to the point where I feel like we're gonna have ocular implants soon. Um, if we don't already, I should probably Google that uh, since Google knows everything. Actually, Google is probably hearing me talk about this and will have the search results for me when I log in. Um, how, I don't know if this is a fair question for you because my perceptions of you personally are building um, as we're talking. I'm getting a sense for who you are. And I have a feeling that just from what you've expressed to me so far, that if somebody were to try to biologically hack your, or to, to hack your pacemaker, that you would will, your will would take over and you would be like, uh, please, I'm not a normal human being. You cannot hack me. Um, but for those of us that aren't superhumans like you that can walk after surgery, I don't know, how do you, how do you deal with that mentally, thinking that somebody can, can hack that? I mean, I feel like you already have a certain, and then again, these are my perceptions building of you as we're talking. I feel like you have a certain mental prowess, again, if, if I'm using words that, that aren't accurate or just don't uh, make any sense, let me know because I found out from previous episodes, words matter that maybe a normal person doesn't have because of the tenacity that you've shown and the things you've had to deal with, maybe that doesn't bother you. Well, to be completely honest, right after I got the pacemaker, my first thought was, who do I know who could help me hack this thing? <laughs> Wait, you, you, wanted to, you wanted to hack your own pacemaker? Yes, I actually, um, I sent out a tweet and a Facebook message that a lot of my friends fell for right after I went back for my post-op and uh, with the doctors and I put that I had got to choose my settings on the pacemaker and I had chose high performance <laughs> and that increased um the BPM, that increased blood flow, um, increased um, <clears throat> vision and all these different things that, you know, powering up a pacemaker and people fell for that. And then a few months later, what was funny was the app and the uh, scanner, the remote control, got an update and I got this big update and I put it on Facebook that you know I was having to update all the software and everything and people were curious they were like what does that mean I said I'll tell you after it's done because I don't really know yet and <clears throat> when it was done I told everyone that now I was able to link up to three Bluetooth devices so if I ride in a car with anybody and your radio goes in and out or a little bit you know that's just the pacemaker it's just trying to link up so don't freak out. And it really freaked a lot of people out. <clears throat> it's, and when people don't know what they're dealing with, it's kind of 
fun to have that ability to play on their emotions and just see how far you can push somebody's trust. You're know, like, you're full of it. Like, you cannot lean to three things. <clears throat> and my grandfather's vehicle has got Bluetooth built in, and it's actually named after me. And I took a screenshot of that one day, and it said, D Derek connected. <laughs> and people were freaking out even more. And they were like, are you you're really linking into cars? That's awesome. That, that's and fantastic. I, and I still, to this day, have not told people, like, he got to name that on his own. And he did that with the dealership just so he wouldn't forget. I'm his. I'm the oldest grandson, so he, that's how he remembers his Wi-Fi password in his car if it ever unlinks. That's that's awesome. Well, they're gonna find out now because you just outed yourself. Yeah, but that's okay. Um, it was a fun joke for a while. That that's uh. It survived uh, for a year, so I'm good. <laughs> I have to say, I appreciate your sense of humor. Um. I tell people, and, and I talk about this in other podcasts, I really have like one tone, it's resting bitch tone. I have resting bitch face, um, but that doesn't mean I'm not happy on the inside. And I am desperately looking for somebody to talk with me who else suffers from resting bitch face. Um, however, uh, you're killing me today. I, I, I love it. This is, um, I love your sense of humor. It's, it's, because I tell people, I, I just remember what I was going to say. I tell people that you have to bring your own sunshine. Um, I feel like you're bringing your own sunshine. Oh, yeah. You have to be able to, especially with me from the over the years, I've spent around two years of my life in and out of hospitals. So you definitely have to be able to find the fun in that you have to be able to laugh at very uncomfortable situations because there is no modesty inside of the walls of a hospital they don't ask you if you're okay with a lot of things that are happening around you a lot of things are just going to have to be done and you're going to have to be okay with that inside your own head and one thing I do um, last year when I had the, I had the pacemaker and then I had a nine hour cardiac ablation about a month later, but my doctor is really cool and um, he knows I'm also a DJ. Mm -hmm. So I build a Spotify playlist for surgeries and for the pacemaker and the, um, the song as I went to sleep because they always make sure they start a song before they knock me out was Michael Jackson don't stop till you get enough <laughs> and my doctor thought that was hilarious he thought that was great he goes that's a great choice good song and I luckily had enough music that lasted the entire surgery that second surgery I didn't but that day started with a uh, prince uh, let's get crazy and my doctor at the end of all that he said you just know the perfect songs to get everybody you know ready to go and to keep you going and you know and I mean that's that's the one thing I've always known is I'm not comfortable 
in my own life. So I have to be the one that makes everybody comfortable around me and then comfortable around really rough situations. And I've figured out the ways to do that through humor and through music. I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I was actually going to ask you um, how much of this is for yourself versus helping other people cope? A majority of it is for everybody else. For me, I, my circumstances will never change. I can't, I can't repair anything. And I know no matter how many doctors and how many good intentions, like the, the situation is the situation. And so I have to, I have to build kind of an air of humor around myself to even make me approachable to begin with. Because anybody that's even introduced to me is going to be hesitant because they just, they know about me, they've heard things about me, and it's because of the stigma around the virus, I mostly try to aim and direct conversations more to the pacemaker and the heart issues because they are the more entertaining. If you're going to want to talk about my health situation, <laughs> there's mm -hmm. way more fun stories there. Um, that's a good point. And I was going to ask about that at some, some point is that we're, uh, and I have um, heart issues, so I'm more likely to talk about those because I'm familiar with them. But I was going to ask, like we do seem to be focusing in on the cardiac stuff and because you have a lot of good stories and, and things like that. But um, what I found is that from having cardiac related issues that are in not, I mean, I, I want to say young age because I'm, I'm old now, but I mean, it was like 22, the real first signs, um, which, which I ignored were probably in high school. Uh, when I failed the physical, I used to play football. I failed the physical. Um, I never looked into why probably should have, but in my twenties is when I was, uh, first had my cardiac issue. So I consider that young, not as young as you, but, um, as I'm getting older, when I'm talking to my peers now versus my peers, then, you know, the, the same people were the same age. We've aged the same. We've all made it this far in life into our late forties. They're all starting to have issues. So there's less of a stigma talking about the cardiac related issues because everybody's finding out that they have them too. They just haven't had them as long or they, and, and they haven't had them as severe, uh, but they're starting to have them. So it's, becoming like a thing people ask me about because they want advice, they're worried or they're whatever. But um, I don't know if you've, I think you just said uh, that there's less of a stigma with the cardiac related issues, cardiac related issues versus the virus issues. So how do you, so I guess I know the answer, you steer people towards the cardiac issues, but I think it's important we talk about the virus. Oh yeah, the virus, um, I'm, 
I'm totally available to talk about that in the right situations. I mean, I, talking about it, you know, casually is not something that happens very often. I'm usually asked to speak on that issue at an event or whatever, and I will go into it thoroughly and tell the entire story. And um, But it's not one that's as easy to bring up because it has the power to break people down. Last time I did a speaking engagement, it was at the local college, and it was a part of the AIDS quilt ceremony. They had pieces of the AIDS quilt were at the local college for a nearing World AIDS Day, and it was a big event, and I spoke at it, and they had a lot of college students that were there to listen, and there was one girl in the front that um I don't I don't know how it happens but it always happens when I go and speak there's always one person that I can pick out in the crowd that I can see I connect with kind of on on a different level than everybody else but this one young girl was just really watching me and so I started talking and telling the story and she started crying and I stopped what I was doing and everybody, even the organizers of the event kind of freaked out for a minute and I sat the microphone down and I went and sat beside her and I put my arm around her and I told her I'm okay. And I walked back and I finished the talk. And at the end, it's always kind of a, it's a weird situation to tell that story in the Southeast because of the stigma. Mm-hmm. When people hear HIV or AIDS, they automatically think of death. And I did too, even when, for when I was first diagnosed, that was my first thought was I'm dead. And it's weird to talk about it because people look at you like you're in your final moments. So you have to turn around in that same moment and say, I'm good, I'm, I'm solid, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. If you need to talk, we can talk face-to-face, one-on-one. We can talk in a group, however you wanna do it, but, but I'm not going anywhere. And that's the weird thing with the the HIV discussion versus the heart discussion. Even though they're both just as critical, like heart issues can take you out in a second. The virus doesn't do that. The virus chips away at you slowly. And I fought the virus and doing very well fighting the virus and I plan on continuing to fight virus my, yeah, I big, don't. my biggest argument um health wise is with my heart I, I was gonna say i don't think the virus realizes who it's fighting <laughs> i picked the wrong person to fight it's gonna lose for sure um but i really appreciate what you said a couple things because 
good public speakers always know how to identify certain individuals in the crowd while they're looking around they can come back to like an anchor and it helps them um, it helps the flow better because you feel like you're talking it's, it's easier to talk to one person than it is a crowd and get that intimacy that the crowd wants um, this is when you're speaking in front of people uh, everybody wants to feel like you know, it, it, uh, that they're being spoken to um, I mean, people know that they're not, but I mean, it just comes off that way. So I appreciate that you, you have just that innate skill. You're like, okay, this is, this is going to happen. And I really like that you were able to take a moment, uh, throw convention aside, go down there, comfort her, go back up and then finish your speech and drop the mic and be like, that's how it's done people. Yeah. And actually the organizer of the event, it threw him off and I had helped him make the um, schedule for the event because I was just like, we need to have a time grid of when everything's going to happen. And he, I watched him crumple the time grid and throw it away. He said, it's yours. He said, whatever you see fit is what we'll do until it came back to things I wasn't, you know, part of or knew how to do, which was stuff with the um, quilt, which is a big ceremonial thing mm -hmm. that he had brought. And he said, whenever you want to give it back to me, it's, that's, that's up to you. Because he was from out of town. And um, he said, this is your crowd. He said, they're here to see you. That's great that he gave you that flexibility to run it. Plus, you know, you're let, let's face it, being a DJ, you have a certain set of skills of time management, working a crowd. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not at all. It's a it's a very unique uh, skill, and it's it takes years to perfect and. Um, it only takes weeks with a bad DJ to ruin a place. And I've seen it happen over and over again. And I've, I've been the one that usually gets the call when a bad DJ has come through and changed the crowd. And I'm usually part of the cleanup crew. And that's not the fun DJ job that I usually like to have to go do, but I, I've done it and I can pick a, club back up and put it back in the spotlight where it needs to be but I get a it's a lot of rough sledding at first when you have to rechange and reformat but it can be done I've done it personally I have done it with my own life and I can do it with a nightclub oh that that I have no doubt I think I mean, again, here's another, uh, the butterfly when it comes to DJing. So I think there's, you know, you see it on TV where you see everybody's been to a, a wedding where there's, you know, there's been good DJs, but then there's been average. I think most people are suffer through weddings with average DJs. Every once in a while, you get a really, really bad one. And you think to yourself, self, why did they pick this poor person to be a DJ? But I think it's, again these are my own personal perceptions is that i think people after they've gone through a bunch of just like average or subpar djs 
that they think it's easy. I have a feeling it's not easy. It's more than just picking song order. Can can you walk me through like what the more is? Yeah, well, one of the big mores for me and one that still resonates with me, I did a wedding and a girl had her grandparents there that had been married for, I think, over 60 years, 55 or 60 years. Well, the, it was time for the bride and groom's first dance, and I can't remember their exact song. I think it might have been John John Legend, all of me at that point in time. But after they, as that song ended, I invited all couples to dance. And her grandparents stayed sitting. And I picked um, the Righteous Brothers. Um, the, I, what's the name of the song? Unchained Melody. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you know that song right offhand. I do. But um, it got her grandparents uh, dancing. And she has pictures of that. And it was about a year later, I think, her um, grandfather passed away. And she called and told me that it was the only picture that she had of her grandparents ever dancing together and how much that meant to her. So that's the difference in an average and a great DJ, as you don't really know what you're doing in the moment. Those moments are realized months to years later. And you'll get those phone calls out of the blue with somebody telling you of what, what you did. That's awesome that you gave her and her family that, that memory. I mean, and I've had three proposals on club and nightclubs while I was DJing and been asked to go and do the receptions, you know, because I was the one there when the proposal happened. Nice. You're, uh, you, you're bringing people together, not just in the DJ world, but with your activism as well. So I'm seeing a lot of lines between the two that are similar. Um, what got you into DJing? Like, I feel like a lot of the skills that you have, and I'm trying to understand, the reason I'm asking is I'm trying to understand which came first. Did these skills happen where you were able to find the right humor, help put people at ease, uh, get them to trust you? Uh, and trust is a big issue, and I don't mean that in a negative term. What I mean by that is if you can get an audience to trust you as a DJ or an audience when you're speaking to trust you, you've, that's most of the battle. And then yeah. once this trust forms, then the knowledge transfer can really happen. So I'm trying to understand what happened first. Did the DJing help you progress, or did the other progression help you become a better DJ or is it just like David no they just happen together you're a moron I can take it no it um it's actually a very crazy story I um right after I was diagnosed I was um I didn't go crazy did I and um I had a friend of mine that was um 
I would make um, make CDs when that first came out, when CDs first became CD burners, they especially became big. I was making all these CDs and they started making their ways into no local nightclubs. And then I became old enough to go out and I was meeting these DJs that were playing these CDs. <laughs> and they were explaining to me, they were showing me all the computers and I didn't know anything about a mixing board and I didn't know anything about any of it. And I kind of just got rolled into it by going out and meeting other DJs. And we were going out to a karaoke nightclub. And I was scared to death of karaoke for years. And one fateful night, I got up and I sang what is probably one of the most embarrassing songs I could have sung, which is Ice Ice Baby. Oh, come and, on. Who doesn't love that song? The club had recently gotten um, wireless microphones and... Uh, this is right when camera cell phones, uh, flip camera phone had come out. That's how long ago this was. And so there was videos all over that I didn't know about. And so the next week rolls around and I'm sitting at home and I get a phone call out of the blue from the owner of the club who is upset that I am not there for karaoke night because he was not there the original night when I first sang and he has heard and seen the videos and he said, everybody's asking about you. And so I started going up and it became a weekly thing of me going up and singing and learning little by little. And it took about two years of me just sitting back, learning, watching, and getting my courage up, and to then being able to go out on my own and DJ. So the DJing confidence came first before I was ever able to want to stand up in front of a crowd and speak on medical issues. Okay. I had to build my confidence by standing on a stage and just acting a fool in front of 300 plus people every weekend for a while, for about seven, eight years before I ever decided to go into a medical arena and start an organization and do anything like that. And part of it was because of the topics, I didn't want to go into a situation where I felt like I was just going to be a diagnosis standing on a stage and speaking to people. So if I went after they knew me as a DJ, I had won, in essence, in my mind, because I had tricked a small town in the southeast 
to see a DJ and not see an AIDS patient. Because for years after I was diagnosed, I didn't get diagnosed until 2001. And word spread very quickly around this small town about me. And I would hear different things when I was out in public and out to eat with family or anywhere. And there was a lot of conversations that, you know, happened around me that I never knew about. And it's just, it's, there's a lot of, lot of stigma in the Southeast that still today exists and needs to be dealt with. But everybody in this town, they don't, they will never call me an AIDS patient or there's, that's a, a guy with AIDS. I'm, I'm their DJ, I'm d uh-huh. <laughs> That's who they know me as. They don't, they don't care about any health problem. They're like, what are, we, we want you back in a nightclub. That's awesome. Um, I, I say this a, a lot. Uh, when I'm doing a coaching session with a client or if I'm helping a company with strategy or whatever, is that if you want to change someone's reality, you need to change their perception. And you've done exactly that. By having the DJ, you're not just this. And I'm going to, I'm going to insert words and you feel free to correct me, but you did not want to show up and be seen as this frail diagnosis. Like you are not, you are a strong individual. You wanted to go up on that stage and be the rock star that you were born to be and control people's perceptions of you, not let the person or the people that are you're speaking with or speaking uh, alongside with, uh, controlling your narrative. Did I say that okay? Yeah, exactly. I I never want uh, anyone to look at me, even though when you look at me, I'm five foot tall and a hundred pounds. And that's because of the virus. I contracted the virus when I was three months of age and from a blood transfusion. And I didn't find out about it for 16 years. And the major medical effect of that was it inhibited me from growing. I mean, it literally, I'm encapsulated in, I call it an AIDS body. I look like the pictures from the early 90s. So there's a huge perception that I have to immediately destroy when you meet me. And I don't have time to be nice about it. So when I walk in a room, I have to be in complete control, go mode, and don't stop. And I have to be that intimidating force and also compassionate and kind and it's there's so many pieces that have to be put together for every interaction nothing is done without internal conversations before i make a move hmm 
do you ever find that tiring or do you find do you get power from that or do you find it exhausting do you ever just want to roll your eyes and be like oh come on y'all i'm so sick of this crap no i actually i like it i like being able to strategize for 10 different possibilities in a moment and be able how am i going to react if they say this how will i react if this happens what if this goes this way and it's it's fun to be able to play that out inside my own head where there there are no consequences there is no right there is no wrong it's just gotta go interesting that's no cool so how how has did you prep for this podcast like i mean because i think uh again this is my own perception probably a very hubris one but um i like to think that my podcast is different because i don't prep i don't come in with any any preconceived notions i have is because of what i've learned as a child what i've read in the past what i've whatever and i'm and i like to examine those lenses um which is why we're you know doing the podcast either examine my lenses or somebody else's version of reality so how did you prep for this podcast? Like, did you run through 9 million scenarios? No, I actually, after we did the pre-interview, I just, I didn't do anything. I went and I honestly played Call of Duty. Awesome. I sat down and just, I said, I've just got to, I've got to walk into this with nothing prepared, no idea. And I've really, really enjoyed this thus far because it has brought up questions that I've never been asked. And I, it's because of your format is so original. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad you're having fun. I get that feedback from uh, so far every guest. I've, I've had a few guests that were crying uh, before because they were so nervous. Um, people aren't as brave as you. Just let me. I may have intimated that previously, but they're not as brave as you. Um, and that's not to put anybody down in, in any way, shape or form, because I think those people that, that were crying before, I usually do a pre-talk and, and help people uh, try to give them some confidence about going uh, on the show. And because once you're on the show and it's on the internet, if it's on the internet, it's alive forever. And yeah. I have an IT, I work in IT in my day job um but i can guarantee that anything like people think snapchat's not forever snapchat's forever it may dissolve on somebody's screen but it's that data's been transferred it's on a server stored someplace there's a backup there's a backup of that backup it's there um so people are very afraid of that and and i like to tell them it's just literally it's just a conversation between you and i I, I think I tried to tell you that in our, in our pre-talk. It's just, just you and I, we're just talking. It's like we met at the coffee shop or, you know, we're out for a beer. We're just hanging out. We're just, uh, we're just chatting. That's really what it's about. And, you know, 
in our conversations. I've talked over you a bit. I want because I wanted to jump in. I'm excited to talk to you, and I apologize for those, but it happens. I was late. It happens, and I appreciate again. I want to publicly say thank you for that. By the way. Uh, because punctuality is a pet peeve of mine and I broke my own pet peeve. So inside this whole hour, I've been dying. I just need you to know that like it's been killing me. Um, but you've been great about it. Um, and you know, there's been a few pregnant pauses as I'm thinking and I, uh, or I want to make sure that you finished because I feel like I've talked over you. So, but conversations are awesome and I appreciate that you're having fun. That's what I want people to do. Um, but I do want to go into a serious topic because we're, we're getting close to an hour. Um, and I always go over because that's just who I am. Yappy McYapperson. Um, you've brought up a couple times there's stigma in the South. And uh, I've lived all over the country. I've lived in the Northeast. I've lived in all over the South. Uh, I've lived um, as far away as Hawaii. I've never had the, the opportunity to live outside the country. Uh, if that comes up, I will take it. Because uh, I like to experience things and meet new people and experience cultures. Can you tell me like what stigmas you might be referring to? That because I've I've lived in Georgia, I've lived in Tennessee, I've lived in uh, Alabama, and now I'm in Southeast Houston or South Southeast Texas, which is Houston. So uh, I'm familiar with with being in the South. I've been in the South a long time. So if you don't mind, like, can you walk me through some of those that you might experience? And the uh, stigmas um, <clears throat> go back to the original, to the early 90s. Oh, okay. So you've got to think uh, 90, 91, 92, there was a lot of stigmas that were associated with eating, drinking after someone, mm -hmm. if someone coughs sneezes, um, using the bathroom, using, and a lot of those still exist. And that's the hardest part with being in the Southeast is it's a lot of that idea of stigma. It's that severe. And that's what I'm always trying to fight day to day is to try and educate that. But it's very difficult because it's you, it's really hard to win an, in a conversation <clears throat> or not even win, but to get your point across when you have to be the one that says, hey, your grandma's not the smartest or your dad's not the smartest. And I've had those conversations a lot. And I mean, I've lost friendships because of it. And it's extremely disturbing when you realize that we all walk around with computers in our pocket with every bit of information you could ever want is at our fingertips. And a two minute Google search can dispel so many myths and in so much stigma but people don't think to take the time to do that and they don't realize the harm it does not only to people around them but to the community and to community that they don't even agree and deal with or think they have to deal with and this virus does not 
go at any group. Anybody can get this virus. I got it as a baby from a blood transfusion. It does not restrict who it goes after. After it, um, it will go after and take out anybody it can. And people aren't getting tested out of fear. And a lot of that fear is due to a lot of old laws that still exist that are in Georgia, non-disclosure laws. Mm-hmm. I've gotten in a lot of big arguments, especially when California dropped their um, disclosure law down because it was um, attempted murder and they dropped it down to a misdemeanor. And there was a big thing that went all on Twitter. I was arguing with people for probably two months where it was people just, I, I can't believe they did that. And it's, it wasn't meant to, it doesn't mean that you can just go and sleep around and not disclose the virus and this and that. And that was the way that was looked at was, yeah, you can go kill somebody now, and you can give them that, you can give somebody AIDS, and that was a big thing that people were saying on Twitter, and so my first thing was, one, you can't give anybody AIDS, you can, you can contract and transmit HIV, that's what you transmit, is HIV, if they don't get tested, then it can become AIDS and you can end up in a very bad health situation. And that just shows you how much ignorance is all the way across the country that people don't understand and they don't take the time to understand what it is. They don't understand the, how it starts, how it progresses and how it ends. And that's just part of educating yourself on any topic like even when i started the dj i had to know how do i start how does the middle how do i do this how do i end the night i mean when i go into a night of work i i plan all that out i mean and and you have to do that with your health too and a lot of people fail to do that with their sexual health when it comes to HIV, because people don't want to know their status, because it comes with a heavy burden of disclosure, and non-disclosure can put you in jail. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of policy changes. There's a lot of laws, and every state's different. So I'm not speaking for every state, every district. Just let me be clear on that. You'll have to look those up on your own. But there are criminal penalties that come with non-disclosure. Mm-hmm. So that keeps a lot of people from even getting tested. Wow. that's. Uh, I feel like that's a topic uh, for another day because I feel like I could go on for a while about that. But when you were talking, and, and I don't want to, but I'm... Don't want you to think I'm dismissing that or what you just said, but I have a few questions that if you don't mind, I want to back up to for a second. So one is another one of uh, Davidisms is how do you win an argument with a three-year-old? 
cow. You don't. <laughs> and so I tell that to, I say that one a lot because it just goes to ignorance. And there's a difference, I think, between ignorance and stupidity. Stupidity is, you know, you're just a stupid person. Ignorance, you could be taught. You just don't know. Um, stupidity would, to me would be like, I've taught you and you've chosen to ignore the teachings. Uh, then you're just stupid. So for example, if I tell you that a stove's hot and you put your hand on there and you're going to get burned and you're like, well, okay, I get it. Then you're like, well, let me put my hand in here and get burned. Well, then that's just stupid. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but that's just how I see life. Um, so my, I guess what I'm trying to bring up there is when you're talking with people who are, um, I mean, you're not talking, you're arguing, because you said, even to yourself, you said you were arguing with people. And I guess my answer, my, my, not my answer, my question to you is, how do you argue with those three-year-olds on Twitter? I mean, you only get 150, 180 characters. I don't know. How many characters do you even get? I don't even know. I'm not sure. They keep changing it. Right. So how do you win that argument? I feel like I, I feel like on social media, and the reason I asked that question is that you're arguing with a bunch of three-year-olds. Uh, you, <clears throat> usually I start off by asking, um, so when was the last time you got tested? And if I don't immediately get blocked, then I will send a link to CDC hiv.gov website where people can learn all the facts about HIV and AIDS. And that's where I end it. Because if not, I mean, it, it's like you said, you will go on forever. So you have learned that there is a stopping point because otherwise it's just an exercise in futility. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. And it I appreciate me, it. ends up me just burning my own time and I'm already living on extra time. I shouldn't even be here statistically. So I shouldn't want to spend my time arguing with somebody on Twitter. Yeah, I love the, the insight there because another Davidism, as I tell people, is time is your most valuable asset. Be careful how you spend it. Um, and that, that has to do with a lot of my own revelations and my own health issues is, is that time is definitely the most valuable thing that we possess. And we so willingly give it away to other people. Um, and we need to be more cautious about that. The other question, if I may, is um, why do we still have ignorance around this topic? Uh, like, I, I mean, I'll be completely upfront with you until you brought it up and we want you wanted to talk about it. I had not thought about the HIV or AIDS probably. I mean, I, I can't even remember the last time that was a thought in my head. Um, until recently, I mean, I'm not going to uh, deny that the Queen movie that just came out didn't make me rethink about it because I remember very, I was, a, was, still am a very big fan of their music. And, you know, when Freddie died, that was, 
it was in the 90s was it not yeah i think it was uh 92 yeah so that was you know shocking um but i i mean myself personally uh i haven't really thought about it a lot but i don't think that i think like normal people so i mean if, if i met uh you in the street i don't I mean, I'd like to think that I wouldn't have treated you any different than like anybody else um, because I know what it's like having people uh, project stigmas on you. I don't share both stigmas with you. I do share the cardiac ones, like you said, but they're, they're more socially acceptable. Um, so I would like to think that, you know, if we met down in person, I would have been like normal, normal me. Um, have no reason to believe otherwise but why do we still have ignorance on that topic and why did i just talk about myself so much me 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 let's talk about derek so how about me no i'm just kidding um why do we still have a uh ignorance on this topic a lot of it is that it um people think that it got left in the 90s hiv and aids was something that's in the 90s and now is just something you take a medication for that's the big perception hmm. and that is true it is very much a, now a very easily treatable disease but the things people don't realize is the stigmas that come with it that your job could be at risk, your relationships, your friendships. I mean, so many different things can now be questioned and put under a spotlight and in a microscope with you. And nobody wants to have their life looked at like that. So nobody ever wants to even let their mind go to the possibility that that could happen and even for my family before i was diagnosed we were all very ignorant to hiv and aids so i mean that's i'm not i have no animosity towards anyone that doesn't have any knowledge of the virus because that's perfectly normal nobody ever wants to put themselves in a situation of what if i got this what would i do you know with any type of disease or diagnosis that's not a fun game to play so i mean the the ignorance around it is very understandable but the ignorance around it is also very detrimental to not only those that are living with it, but those that aren't, because you're not protecting yourself against it. There are some, and I mean, it's very easily preventable. I mean, still the safest way to prevent getting HIV is condom use. And that's not even being really taught in schools. Schools have all backed off of uh, sex education and reduced funding all across the board across the country for sex education and that's a huge disservice 
when you look at the statistics, the, the, the highest number of newly diagnosed people in the country is between the ages of 13 and 24. Wow. And so that automatically lets you know that it's because of the cut to sex education. There's a lot of abstinence-only sex ed that is being taught around the country, and as nice of an idea as that is, you're never going to stop people from having sex. You're just not. So why not empower them and teach how to keep themselves safe and to keep their health, which is a very precious commodity that people don't think about until it's too late. That's very true. That's very true. People, I found that some, a lot of people think they're inv invincible until they find out they're not. Exactly. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I mean, I, when I go into the hospital, I mean, my, I'm codenamed the Terminator because I've, I've had five pacemakers and I've fought two different very serious medical issues and I'm still up and going. I don't stop. That's why my doctors refer to me as the Terminator. I just keep going. And I have, because of everything I went through, open heart surgery at such a young age and fighting the virus for years, I don't know when I'm hurt. I actually killed a pacemaker. The fourth one, I, or third one I had, I went in for a um, just a regular cardiac checkup, and I thought I was being pranked when a nurse um, came with um, a manual cuff and a stethoscope to check my blood pressure because the little auto clips that they put on your finger it kept showing weird numbers mm -hmm. and she came back and put the cuff and everything on my arm and she checked manually and then i was thrown into a room and told to lay down and my doctor came in and i was sitting on the phone playing angry birds and he goes you don't listen at all do you i said nah not usually what's up he goes well it looks like your pacemaker has died I said, I just looked at him like they were crazy. I said, that means I'm dead. I said, no, that doesn't mean you're dead. And the nurse picked my hand up and put it on my chest. And I heard a boom. And then I felt another boom. And they were kind of not at the speed they should be. And then the doctor looked at me and he asked, he said, does that feel normal? And I said, it seems a little slow, but I'm fine. He said, your heart rate is at 36 beats a minute. He said, you're an alligator. He said, you walked all the way from the parking lot with no problem. He said, so obviously we've got a problem we've got to fix. And we've got to teach you what pain feels like and how to recognize when something's not right. And the weird part about it was a week before that, I had started working out and mm -hmm. I was running two miles a day. 
and they explained it to me that I felt so good because it was the first time in my life that I was able to consciously live without a machine partially controlling my heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why you felt so good. So now the, the mentality is that if I start feeling really well, I need to go to the hospital immediately because something is wrong. Oh, that, that's, that's how bad, that's how backwards my life is. That's, that's, uh, if, if, if I may use a harsh word, that's horrible. Like I want, I, I, after an hour talking with you, I want you to feel that good all the time. And my doctors do too, but that's the, that's the mindset I always have to like keep in the back of my mind. If I wake up and I'm not hurting, something's not right. Something has broke in the middle of the night. And do I want to go find out or do I not? Like I've woke up and lately I've been having really bad um, problems with heartburn and indigestion and stuff and I'm just got on the new med for that and so I've had to be questioning every little feeling of like what is that what is that because once you start get letting your mind go into that high alert mode it's hard to come back out of that yeah you're going to a hyper awareness so it's it's one extreme or another and it's always a balancing act, but it's also entertaining. It's a twisted sense of comedy for me. Well, I'm sure you've heard this and you're visiting other interviews and, and talks and things, but you should probably start writing all this down. <laughs> um, I could definitely see a, with your sense of humor, um, I definitely see a good Netflix series out of this. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a book about it. I did write a book uh, two a year ago. Yeah, the book came out a year ago. But my punishment for writing the book was having to get a fifth pacemaker and a nine-hour cardiac ablation. Oh, well. Everybody, that's my penance for the book. Because I wrote a book and that none of that is made it in the book. So it's pretty funny. I wrote a book about 30 plus years of medical issues and I missed one of the most entertaining three month periods of my life. All right. So let's just say that Netflix, because they're obviously going to listen to this podcast, because why wouldn't they? Um, actually, the, they probably will because you're, you're, uh, you've got a huge following. But if they're listening, they should get the book and read it. What's the title of the book so everybody can go get it and read it? Operation Direct. And that there is unfinished business, Netflix, if you're listening. There's, there's more episodes. There's a whole other season uh, that, that uh, Derek uh, did not get to put in the book. So I'm. And, and so you won't have to do any more penance if they come and interview you about it and just write it down, then you don't have to go through all that. Yeah. And the, the bugs actually, I'm really, it's very funny. It's uh, there's a lot of humor in it. It's a lot of personal family stories and uh, it's, uh, 
I always tell people like when I when I go to speak, like my goal is to have you leaving um laughing with tears in your eyes. I don't I never go after your sympathy. I don't want anybody's sympathy. What happened to me was all it's just bad timing. I mean I when I was born I crashed a birthday party. I crashed my uncle's birthday party. <laughs> I was a month early and crashed a birthday party. That's how I entered the world. So I started out causing chaos and for the past 34 years I have done nothing but cause more. Well, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it, Derek. Yeah. I've definitely enjoyed causing chaos. It's it's an art I've definitely perfected. Well, um definitely a rarity on my podcast and in life is that people got to hear me uh, laugh a little bit. And that's all thanks to you because of your incredibly refined and unique way of presenting information in a comfortable yet, like you said, funny, funny way. Um, so I, I appreciate it. And we are nearing the, the end of the hour. So I want to do two things, uh, if I may. Um, one, a little housekeeping. Uh, can you tell everybody how to contact you on Twitter, who they, how to follow you, and your website, please? Um, on Twitter, let me make sure I get my name right. It is djdrek84, and my website is derekcanis.com, D-E-R-E-K-C-A-N-A-S.com. Thank you for that. And you already said the name of the book. Can you, well, there's two questions that I have for you and I'll let you answer them however long or little you want. But one is, um, is there any topic or anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover today? Because I do bounce around a lot. So thanks for, thanks for sticking with me the whole hour. And then the other is, do you want to mention your charitable foundation? Um, yeah, we can mention the uh, Charitable Foundation, and it's very easy to find all that info. It's all on the website, and the website um, at the top gives you all the uh, social media links. Great. And if, if any of the links are not working, you can go all the way to the bottom of the page, and you'll actually get a live feed from uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So you can get all three there if one of the links at the top should happen to not be working. And the website actually has two um, RSS feeds from two different HIV websites. So there's news articles and stuff every day on there that can be looked at. And all the most up-to-date news is usually there because I... I don't think I'm that interesting, so I don't post every day. I try to post once a week. So in the times that I'm not posting, there are still things you can go to and read and link to from the website, which is, I'm very thankful. I had a very good crew that put that together together for me. And uh, 
we're getting ready to add uh, shirts and stickers and different things for people to buy to help with different events and stuff like that. And if you would want to join the, uh, it's called D-Rex Angels and Warriors. And, and if you want a shirt or anything, we have shirts right now. We're working on different items to set up. If you would like a shirt, just um, contact me and let me know. And we have all that stuff. We use it for um, different walks and different events. There's always angels and warriors that are running around that are there. Um, if you can't find me, one of them will definitely be able to find me because they all have my number. And they're all usually pretty tall and I'm short so they can look down and find me pretty easily which is the reason i got them all very tall so they're i'm i can easily find them and they can easily find me but the in the stigma foundation has done some uh, great work there's a couple news articles and things about it and we started uh two years ago doing toy drives for uh, pediatric units and hospitals. And uh, it's a very unique toy drive. It's uh, what happens when you let a DJ put a toy drive together, you end up getting a, um, I'll send you some pictures. But the first one we did, we had the Grinch. I didn't, I didn't call Santa to have a toy drive it's called the Grinch. And um, we packed a 1957 old uh, flame job um, suburban full of toys and took them to the local hospital with a full police escort. And it was amazing. So much fun because uh, the cops were involved and they had a blast. And we got to walk around the hospital and deliver toys with the Grinch. And it's incredibly fun because a lot of kids kind of shy away from Santa. Mm -hmm. But it's so much fun to watch them run straight towards the Grinch. I don't know why that is. They'll oh, run less, to, less pressure. <laughs> they'll run to the big green guy, but they'll run away from the, the guy in the red suit. But this past year we did one and we um, had a local venue call us that wanted to host it. And uh, they had, we had Santa and the Grinch and Buddy the Elf and Frosty and we had reindeer. We had a classic car. We had our police escort again. And we, we go about, we cause, we just put on a big, big, fun show it's fun toy drive and that one went uh, to Wolfson Children's Hospital in Jacksonville the first one stayed local here in Brunswick Georgia and we're expanding out every year it's become something that um, is just so much fun that now the um, the police and the different venues are already started calling going you're doing that again right we want to be able to do that because the um the cops when they showed up both years they actually get the um opportunity to arrest the grinch 
and they put that on their Facebook pages to let the area know that our holiday is safe. That's awesome. Um, that's fantastic. That that's cool. Uh, I like I like that. And I've got some pictures and stuff I can send you from those events that I yeah send them. I'll put them in the blog, um, and I'll put the links to all your 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 website um, so they can get to the they can jump to the other links from there and, and the, the blog when I write it. Yeah, um, it's fun. It's fun to watch the cops getting on to the grand trail. It's all just it's all fun. The the guy that um plays the Grinch for us is awesome. He does such a great job. And every year that, I mean, we did one with just the Grinch last year. We had so many characters I can't even keep up. And who knows what's going to happen this year. I'm anxious to see what we come up with. Every year it's growing, so. That's fantastic. Cool. Sounds like a great time. I'm glad. It sounds like you have fun doing it too. And everybody does. That's great. Yeah, I, I didn't want to do just a a regular like toy drop off. I wanted to make it an event. That's what I that's just what I do. I did events for nightclubs for years. So I just took what I learned there and we just built it into something for a different reason. Took some crazy ideas and found some helpers and we make, we've changed, changed and helped a lot of people around in hospitals. It's, it's incredible to see the reaction, especially when you roll up to a hospital with classic cars packed full of toys and you've got hospital staff that are rolling out little, uh, little uh, TV tray holders to pick toys and then they have to call maintenance to get a hand truck <laughs> wow that, that actually that actually happened the first year the uh the girl we were dealing with with the hospital came downstairs and had one of those little two level carts that you know you just load up and i looked at that i said we've got to call maintenance <laughs> And she had a pallet jack come down, and we loaded the pallet jack to the max with us carrying a lot of stuff, trucking it around too. But we took a picture that, I mean, you couldn't see the Christmas tree they had behind us because we had stuff stacked so high. That's awesome. Congratulations for the success on that. That's uh, that, that these things are no small feats and you're making it sound easy. So I just want to acknowledge how difficult pulling an event off like this is. I was on the board of a charity for a long time, uh, probably about 10 years. And, and uh, we've done these things and we used to actually do a breakfast with the Grinch because I like you did not want to have just Santa. Um, and here's my impression. Uh, I feel personally that the children respond better to the Grinch because Santa is always judging you. Yeah. And there's no judgment with the Grinch. 
there's only an upside with the Grinch. Um, and to me, I think that makes him more approachable with the kids. Uh, but that's, again, these are my perceptions and just observations over the years. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I picked the Grinch because he was just mischievous. I mean, he fit in with my character that I turn into when I DJ. Like, we did just fit. Like, who else am I going to hang out with on the holidays? I'm not going to go hang out with Santa. I'm going to go hang out with the Grinch. <laughs> He's, uh, honestly, he would probably be a lot more fun. Um, but I, I identify the same way you did. That's part of why uh, why I picked the Grinch when I ran the um, the Christmas uh, Christmas fundraiser. But lastly, if you if you don't mind, I, I mean, I could literally go on forever. So we should probably schedule more time to do a whole other podcast episode. But um, I do want to tell people in Southeast Georgia, you are in Southeast Georgia, right? How yeah. they can hire you as their DJ of choice. Is that also on your website or is that a different? No, that can all be done on the website. There's a ping tab and all you've got to do is leave a note when you book, if you want me as a DJ or if you need me for a health related event or anything like that and um, I'm more than ready to be there awesome be. awesome so everybody uh, go to the website and you can book Derek for your event and by event that is the incredibly open item it doesn't matter what the event is book him he'll be there and you will be forever grateful uh, as you can attest by the hour and however long we've spent together today all of us that uh, those events are worth booking uh, definitely a good time um, Derek I'm I feel guilty I'm feel like I'm cutting you off because I know that we could go on forever but I have I, to be we a little disciplined because I I didn't even tell you about it I have a very unique DJ system that I people would be interested in <laughs> it's called the emulator it's a 46 inch glass touchscreen I look like Tony Stark when I'm DJing it's pretty awesome like a screen from um, Minority Report and if anybody wants any more info about that just contact me on the website and I'll let you know you um that was a good that was that was good but i feel like do you want to just take another minute and tell people more about what that is because i'm curious um the emulator is a 46 inch uh glass it's all glass touch screen so it's basically a an iPad without a back. You can see straight through it. So people can see everything I'm doing when I'm on stage. You can see right through it. And it, I have a paint program on it so I can write messages to you. I can say hello to you. I can make draw a little stick man and make him dance. You can watch completely what a DJ is doing. And I also invite people throughout all my events that I bring the emulator to 
to come on stage and scratch the records and pick songs and draw on the screen and it's very interactive it's very fun and it's something that um, i'm hoping to get to medical conferences and different things if um if they would be interested in it i think it would be a very new take on just somebody coming in and speaking at a medical conference i would take it a whole different direction i'd build a whole show about my life and my story around the emulator and so the story has its own music and goes in and out i tell different crazy stories throughout the years and everything that i've been through and everything that led me to the dj and to the campaign and all of it when it's all put together it's a very fun and cool story it's not anything it's not your usual hiv story at all this is a dj terminator perspective madness story that comes together in a way that will could change someone's life i mean i i say that not being cocky i say that knowing the power of the story and knowing <clears throat> seeing the reactions firsthand when i've told the story Well, thanks for sharing that. I hope people contact you uh, about it. Um, I am wanting to see that in person, quite frankly. And I think that uh, there's a huge market, if I may just jump into um, my unsolicited coaching hat, which I do for everybody all the time. But uh, a market that you may want to really think about is the trade show market. Um, people have these, uh, I've done trade show circuit for many, many years. People are always looking for ways to up the ante in their booth to draw uh, people in and an interactive way to present their product like what you're proposing could be huge. I, I'm not discounting what you're saying because like I can totally in my head as you're describing it, I can picture you DJing up on that stage and like having a ball with it. and as you described your um, story at a medical event, like actually I kind of want to see that in person because I bet you it's like epic. And I mean that sincerely. I bet you that's a great show, a great I, talk. The emulator screen is extremely fun. And I mean, it, there's so many applications that it can do. And like I, I was playing Angry Birds on it last night. Like that's how many things it can do. I, I use it mainly for DJing, but if I get bored, we can use it for Angry Birds. So trade shows and stuff, it, it would be great for. It's a big video game system, DJ system, it's presentation system, whatever you need it to be. Yeah, I, selfishly, like I'm thinking um, uh, for for booth, uh, if you're having people at your booth, after this, we I got to wrap up because people are like, wow, David, you've been talking for like an hour and 40 minutes. But at a booth, like you can present your information on one side and have like an intimate conversation 
and people who are waiting to be next in line can watch from the other side and still get a good gist of it. Um, I, I love it. So I'm a fan. Um, my mind's whirling. But anyway, that's a bad sign for all of us when David's mind goes crazy and whirling because that just means another hour. So I'm going to stop. And thank you for your time. Thanks for sharing uh, everything with us. Um, I had a great time. Uh, and I appreciate your feedback earlier on that you did too. So um, thanks for being on the show today. And we should really, and I mean, we should really talk about, if there's anything that you want to talk about in the future, I'm your man. Let's just talk about it. All right. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And again, thank you for being on. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. If you'd like to leave feedback on the podcast, comment on this episode or previous episode, or to be a guest on the show, leave me a message by calling 1-585-210-0240. Any feedback or episode comments could end up being aired in the future. I look forward to hearing from you.